Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. Hi, everyone. Okay, at the very start today, we've taken our masks off, but we do have the hand sanitizers in the studio because we're going to be talking plagues. <laughs> That's right, Maggie. Actually, it's my son, Bobby, who asked me to do this at, but back down when it was lockdown with COVID. But we didn't do it then, did we, Mikey? Because we wanted to wait wait until we were at least on the other side so that we could get a bit of perspective. Okay, Paulie, first off, what constitutes a plague? I'm guessing, are we going to get biblical? <laughs> yes, it's probably worth trying to pin it down, isn't it? Because it is one of those words that gets bandied around quite a lot, the plague. You know, lots of disease and pestilence have been labelled plague over the centuries. But really, when we use the word, we're talking about the bubonic plague. And that's the acute infectious disease caused by the baculus yersinia pestis. And something I didn't realise, Mikey, is actually still endemic in rodent populations in the Americas, both north and south, and also in Africa and Central Asia. And it's transmitted to humans mostly by the bite of the oriental or Indian rat flea that are found on these black urban rats and, of course, also the brown sewer rats. Charming. Okay, so there have been three great world pandemics of plague recorded, one in the 6th century, the 14th century, and also the 19th century. But interestingly, they all seem to have originated in different parts of the world. The first one, the Justinian Plague, that's in 541 CE. It started in Central Africa and spread to Egypt and the Mediterranean. The Black Death, year 1347, that originated in Asia and spread to the Crimea and then Europe and Russia. And the third, probably the the least well-known plague in 1894, it originated in Yunnan in China and spread to Hong Kong and India and then to the rest of the world. I want to say that sounds familiar, but but I won't. But, but mate, please go on. Okay. Now, if you think of the impact COVID and SARS before, the impact they had on our modern economy with all the infrastructure and technology we have to support our modern world, you can only imagine the devastation these plagues must have caused back centuries ago, you know, particularly without any of the aid to be had from you know, modern medicine. In fact, I think in historical terms... The impact of plague and these three mass plagues in particular, I think they've actually been downplayed or even ignored by many historians over the years. Whereas the reality, in my opinion, is that these plagues, they actually shook global economies to their very core. And at least one case, they were big enough to bring down empires, perhaps a whole civilization. Right. Okay, so let's start with the Justinian Plague of 541 to 544 CE. And of course, that's named after Justinian I, the most illustrious of Roman emperors. Although, don't forget, by this time, the western half of the Roman Empire has fallen. So he's ruling from Byzantium or Constantinople. As we know, modern day Istanbul, right. Right. Actually, Maggie, as we're already in ancient Rome, like I said before, there were lots of other epidemic, sort of national, regional outbreaks of disease that struck throughout history. And while not necessarily pandemic, the whole world, 
and not our bubonic plague, certainly, these plagues still brought a whole range of catastrophic consequences with them to the countries or dynasties they affected. And if we look at the Roman Empire period, we can see that it's actually a very good example. Because Rome was hit by plague a few times, wasn't it? Correct. Perhaps most famously, there's that great line from Marcus Aurelius, isn't there, in the Historia Augusta, when he's dying in 180 CE, he turns to his followers and asks, why are you weeping for me and not instead thinking about the pestilence and death we all share? Hang on, is that one the Antonine Plague? Precisely. <laughs> and although it was actually put most probably smallpox, not the plague plague, it still did wreak havoc and was a massive feature in bringing to the end the great period of Pax Romana, and as such was also one of the often overlooked factors in the whole saga that was the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, just as the impact of the Huns were, Yeah, as we mentioned in that Attilaret. Anyway, let's stick with Justinian, that amazing emperor who, with his wife Theodora, took Eastern Rome to one of its highest of high points. So we're now talking 6th century. He reigns from 527 to 565. And the Roman Empire, like we said, it shifted its access eastwards to Constantinople. But that's not to say that Rome and Western Europe have been given up completely. In fact, Justinian, he makes it one of his key ambitions to win back land in Italy and North Africa and a whole host of other territory from the halcyon days of Pax Romana. And this Justinian, he's such a successful ruler that he manages to build up enough wealth, enough power to send out his generals to victory. What is it that he does so differently, Paulie? Why is he so successful? Well, most of it is actually pretty boring accountancy stuff, like raising taxes efficiently, wiping out corruption and tweaking the systems enough so that everyone's actually happy and prosper enough to pay. But Justinian, he's also one of those emperors with real vision. You know, like I said, he understands the significance of Italy to the empire's collective psyche and how that can be a sort of banner to draw in the populace behind him. And he also knows the propaganda value of big cultural statements, probably the biggest of which is the building of the, probably my favourite cathedral in the whole world, the Hagia Sophia, the Church of the Holy Wisdom. It's an incredible building, which must have been a massive statement at the time, and which still sits as a museum in the middle of the old Sultanahmet quarter of Istanbul. But what you're saying is this is all brought crashing down by the plague. Not just me, Mikey. Procopius, the great Byzantine historian at the time, he wrote... The whole human race came near to be annihilated. Wow. Right. <laughs> now, like we said earlier, it seems this first major outbreak, it originates in Ethiopia, in Africa, around about 540 CE. And from there, it quickly spreads to Egypt, Alexandria, Gaza, then up to Jerusalem and Antioch. Now, of course, by this time, these cities, they're all the great cities within the Byzantine Empire. So it's only a matter of time before it hits the capital, you know, what's now Istanbul. And of course, back then was Constantinople. Because you've got to remember, Mikey, once these plague rats with their fleas, once they get to the shores of the Mediterranean, they can start hitching rides on all the trading ships. And in fact, it wasn't long before this plague was all over Southern Europe. Hang on, Paulie, wasn't it this plague that gives us the word bubonic? That's right, from my man Procopius again, the historian. It's him and other accounts from this period that we get the word bubonic from because he uses it to describe the swellings below the abdomen, bubon. Ugh. Okay, so this first plague, it peaks in the spring of 542 and there's almost 5,000 deaths per day 
in the Justinian capital. You know, some even estimate 10,000 per day. And it kills over a third of the city's population. In fact, over the next three years, plague rages through not just the eastern side of the Mediterranean, but also Italy, southern France, the Rhine Valley, Iberia. It goes as far as north as Denmark and as far west as Ireland. <laughs> and then it seems to sort of make a return back to Africa, the Middle East and Asia Minor. So between the years 542 and 546, this plague, Mikey, all up, it goes through Asia, Africa and Europe and it kills nearly 100 million people. Wow. Yes, 100 million people, but Europe is the worst and Justinian's empire in particular because these rats, you know, mostly they're going to be found in ports and cities, as you can imagine. So it's the empires like Rome, whether it's east or west, empires with the largest number of densely populated conurbations, that's where the plague would always be most deadly. And actually, Mikey, it's worth pointing out here that despite all the great things we always hear about Rome and the Roman Empire, yeah, certainly its major capitals and big cities, the Roman Empire was actually never a very healthy place to live, at least not when compared to the more rural areas and places like the steppes of Central Asia, Yeah, at least in terms of longevity. You see, no matter which bit of the Roman Empire you pick, life expectancy in the cities it was terrible. Less than 30 years of age, on average, almost always. And that's for both men and women? For both men and women, even when the empire was at its full pomp. Because even when the plague wasn't in town, there were all sorts of other diseases which liked nothing better than the nooks and crannies of a big city to hide in. And of course, yeah, with so many people living in such close proximity to one another, all these diseases could very, very quickly spread. So in terms of life expectancy, Mikey, even when Rome was conquering half the known world, you would still have been better off living in a yurt or a hut in a field out in the middle of nowhere. Crazy. So there you have it, yeah, the Justinian plague. It devastated eastern Rome cities, it destroyed trade, led to the collapse in agriculture as there weren't enough workers to sow and harvest the crops, and widespread famine became the norm. No matter how good an emperor Justinian was, there was nothing he could do to counter the massive hole the plague explosion caused, both in economic and societal terms. You know, in many ways, the Eastern Roman Empire, or what we would call the Byzantine Empire, would never be the same again. Okay, so we're talking plagues, specifically the bubonic plague, and how its impact on history, how we know it, has stretched far beyond just medical implications. So, Paulie, next up, you've got your second major plague, and this is the one that, you know, it's, it's the big bopper, the one we know as the Black Death. Right, the Black Death, the world's second pandemic plague, around about 1347 to 1352. Okay, so this one, this was first brought to everyone's attention in the Crimea, the Crimea Peninsula, which of course has been in the news so much recently. That sticking out wedge of land in the north of the Black Sea, the land, of course, that Russia grabbed from the Ukraine back in 2014-2015. Also, you've seen that great British disaster that charged the light brigade poorly, if I'm not much mistaken. <laughs> yes, right. So that charge, that was at Balaclava, just outside the Crimean capital, Sevastopol. But for this plague outbreak, Mikey, we're about 100 kilometres further east along the peninsula at a town called Kaffa, modern-day Feodosia. Kaffa, it was a trading town on the shores of the Black Sea, but it had actually been established and set up by the Genoese and a group of their merchants from Italy. But back in 1347, at the start of this outbreak, the Tartar armies of Khan Janibeg, who'd been based in Asia Minor, 
These armies were laying siege to the town with a view to conquering the whole region. Now, it seems the plague had already landed in Asia Minor, northern Turkey, the Caucasus, and although Janibeg's siege of the town Kaffa was unsuccessful, so the story goes, according to the description of Gabriel de Mousses from inside the city, in revenge for the failure, the Tartars catapulted over the walls of the town corpses of people who had died from the Black Death. So in panic, you know, most of the Genoese traders, they immediately fled the city in their ships and galleys. But of course, it was too late, and all they were doing was taking the sickness with them. So by 1348, it had reached not just Genoa, but Marseille, Paris, Germany, then Spain, England and Norway by 1349, and back into Eastern Europe in 1350. Although interestingly, Maggie, Janibeg and his Tartars, they shrugged off their failure at Kaffa and headed north instead into other parts of Russia and started spreading the plague there. All right. Now, it was this second great plague that brought about black spots across the victim's skin, and it was these that would later lead commentators to call it the Black Death, although actually that phrase doesn't seem to have been used at the time. People died with such rapidity, Mikey, that proper burial or cremation could not occur. Corpses were actually thrown into large pits with other putrefying bodies lying in their homes and in the streets. And significantly, Mikey, people were as much afraid they would suffer a spiritual death as they were a physical death. Since so many of the priests and clergymen also died, there were no clergy to perform burial rites. But also too, didn't people believe that the Black Death itself was punishment from God for their sins and immoral behaviour? That's exactly right, Mikey. And in fact, in various parts of Europe, you've got people joining these great processions of flagellants, whipping themselves with nail-embedded scourges and encanting hymns and prayers as they passed from town to town. You see, Mikey, things got so bad, all in all, the Black Death killed a quarter of the population in Europe, over 25 million, and then another 25 million in Asia and Africa. And almost as importantly, this massive reduction in the population meant a similar massive reduction of the potential workforce. And it was this lack of people, lack of labour, that essentially brought the whole feudal system, which was still dominant across Europe, brought that whole system crashing down. You see, in the aftermath of the plague, labourers, they were so valuable, they could hire themselves out for real money rather than living tied to the great lords of the manor. So in many ways, Mikey, it's the Black Death, as much as any other factor, that brings an end to the whole concept of peasantry, well, at least in England. Oh, right, yes, the, the famous peasants' revolt. Exactly. And interestingly, another thing that emerges at this time, Mikey, is the notion of quarantine. Now, as you might be able to guess from the name, it's the Italians we need to thank for this one, in particular the Venetians. Because it's now 1374, the plague's still hanging around sporadically, breaking out in small patches around Europe. And Venice, because it's the great trading power of the Mediterranean at the time, and because of its enormous fleet of ships and all the comings and goings that are brought with it, Venice, in terms of these remnant outbreaks of the full-on Black Death, it's been one of the city's hardest hit. Now, do you remember the old doge we had in the fourth crusade episode? 
Oh, our old mate, the blind doge Dondolo. Dondolo, that's the one. Well, during this 1374 outbreak, the doge at that time, Venice's ruler, he institutes various public health controls, such as isolating victims from healthy people and preventing ships with disease from landing at port. In particular, travellers from the Levant and the eastern Mediterranean, where the Venetians most feared the plague was coming from. So all these ships and crews, they were isolated in hospital for 40 days. The Quarantina, or Quaranta Gioni, from which, of course, we derive the term quarantine. Yeah, apparently they did actually first try 10 days and then 20 (laughs) and then 30. But it was only when they pushed the waiting period out to a full 40 days that they started seeing noticeable effects. Actually, Paulie, when you first said you were, you were going to be looking at plagues, I had a bit of a dig around myself and I, I came up with some pretty interesting stuff on quarantining. And this time it's from your neck of the woods in England. Oh, great. Yeah. Okay. First up, I've got this anonymous description of England during a plague outbreak in the 16th century. And it sounds a little familiar. Houses are left desolate. We are afraid of one another. Men hardly trust themselves. Yea, scarcely the clothes off their back. Where are our solemn meetings, our frequent assemblies? Men stand afar off. The streets and the highways mourn. Traffic ceaseth. Merchandise decayeth. The craftsman and the cunning artificer is ashamed of his poverty. See, during that century, there had been quite a few plague outbreaks. Measures had been put in place. In 1540, Liverpool required all infected people to live in cabins out on the heath in the summer or just stay indoors. Well, that didn't work and it wasn't particularly practical, particularly if you didn't have a cabin out in the heath, and it wasn't really enforced. In 1550, York has armed men on the Oost Bridge to prevent movement in and out of the city. In 1564, Exeter imposed a stay-at-home law. Mm. London aldermen, though, they, they dragged their feet, particularly when it came to imposing plague taxes on wealthy merchants. They did, however, employ poor Londoners to actually walk around town and gather up the dead. Ah. But in 1577, the plague was back and it hit London again, which brings us to a man we've talked about before, Sir William Cecil. Of course, yeah, Elizabeth's chief advisor, spymaster and secretary of state. Exactly. In 1578, he imposes laws, and I'm going to quote here, specially directed and commanded by Her Majesty, upon the princely and the natural care she hath conceived towards the preservation of her subjects, who by very disorder and for lack of direction do in many parties willfully procure the increase of this general contagion. Mm. So these orders are drawn up in 1578. They're posted all through England in markets, churches, chapels. Look, they were read aloud in public places for those who couldn't read. And they contain 17 stipulations for the management of the plague. Now, amongst these laws, there was an imposition of a special plague tax, the appointment of watchers on quarantine houses to make sure you stayed inside, special agents to view the dead and oversee burials, and also to how you would recognise these officials. There were also specific suppliers appointed to bring food and drink to those shut up in their houses, punishments for those breaking quarantine, the distribution of supposed remedies, the burning of all bedding and clothing of those who had died, mm. and check this out, the suppression of dangerous opinions. Mm. 
All right, so that brings us to our third great plague. And you'll probably guess that this, this is the one that hit London in such devastating effect in the 17th century and the one that's been linked to the Great Fire of London in 1666. Yes, yeah, the plague that's so famously described by Samuel Pepys in his diaries and later, of course, by Daniel Defoe in his A Journal of a Plague Year. And then, of course, you know, with the fire, you've got the story of Samuel Pepys burying a whole wheel of parmesan cheese underground for safekeeping, just like we said in Extra Helpings. Yes, and things did indeed get pretty drastic back then. You know, people were incarcerated in their homes and doors were painted with a cross. And this, of course, was the plague that gave us in England the old nursery rhyme, you know, ring-a-ring-a-roses, which is a sort of, yeah, the red blistery rash that they got, a pocket full of poses, which was the fragrant herbs and flowers to ward off the miasmas, a tissue, a tissue, which is the sneeze and the cough heralding pneumonia, we all fall down, which of course meant they're all dead. Now that outbreak of the plague, it did reach a peak in September 1665 when 7,000 people per week, they say, were dying in London alone, a fifth of London's population in total. And then, of course, you've got the Great Fire of London in 1666. That's right, you know, the bakery on Pudding Lane, all that stuff. Well, in one way, actually, Mikey, the fire was a bit of a godsend, as the subsequent rebuilding programme meant that many of the old timber and thatch houses, they were actually replaced with brick and tile structures. And, of course, the fire itself, it burnt a lot of the rats, you know, normal habitats alongside the human dwellings, and that great fire as a whole, it actually led to a sizable reduction in ratty numbers. Actually, Paulie, while we're talking about the London Plague, I've got to tell you another story that I came across that I really liked. Go on. Farts in a jar. Ooh. Okay, medical experts at the time, as you said, they concluded that the plague was airborne. They called it a miasma, or a deadly vapour. Actually, of course, yeah, as we've stated before, it wasn't airborne, but it was transmitted by fleas on infected rats, like you said. But hey, it was the 17th century, and, and you dealt with what you knew. <laughs> so what the quacks at the time, what they came up with was a theory that to counter these evil vapours, the best remedy was to confront them with something equally as foul and unpleasant, if not worse. Now, for this reason... Many upper-class Londoners welcomed a new pet into their upscale homes. <laughs> the theory was that you got your hands on the stinkiest goat you could find. Goat? And, yeah, and then let your cloven-hoofed air defreshener <laughs> take up residence in your parlour with the hope that its rank odour would keep the plague at bay. Ooh. However, if your budget didn't run to a goat, or if you were in need of a more portable solution in the war against plague, <laughs> doctors had a more simple remedy. So you mentioned with the Black Death, Paulie, how people would carry around a pocket full of posies, mm. aromatic flowers and herbs such as roses, aloe, thyme and camphor. Well, by the 17th century, there were some new players in town. First, there was a proliferation of amulets and other adornments that claimed to have magical powers. But, and this is my favourite, you get the quacks telling any Londoners who'd listen, all you had to do was fart in a jar... <laughs> Quickly seal the jar and then keep that fart-filled jar handy. <laughs> the theory being that if you wandered into a part of town that you felt was particularly plaguey, <laughs> you simply uncorked the jar and took a whiff. <laughs> now, you either bought a jar or did it yourself or captured <laughs> someone else's farts. I'm pretty certain there was a flourishing market in pre-farted jars. Here's the thing. Although, of course, there was no therapeutic value, as if I needed to say that, mate, mm. modern doctors have stated that we shouldn't underestimate the calming, if stinky, placebo effect these jars actually had on the folks that used them. <laughs> oh, 
All right, well, fart jars aside, Mikey, the strangest thing that I think has come out of this whole episode is that that famous London plague of the 17th century, that's not actually what the scientists consider to be the third great plague. For to find a third truly global outbreak, as we said at the top of the show, you need to forward wind to 1894. End of the 19th century, third great plague. I've never heard of this before. Well, this is a plague that began to emerge from the remote Chinese province of Yunnan back in 1855. And from there, the disease advanced along the old tin and opium routes and reached the provincial capital, Kunming, in 1866. And by 1894, it had reached Canton and Hong Kong. And that's when it really started spreading, getting as far as Bombay by 1896. And by 1900, it actually reached a port on every continent. So this is another of your rat fueled bubonic plagues. That's right. And it spreads faster than the first two because, of course, it's now being carried by infected rats that are travelling the international trade routes on all the new steamships. And here's something I never knew, Mikey. In 1900, this third great plague, it comes to Australia. And there's actually a major outbreak in Sydney on the Darling Harbour wharves. And from there, it spreads to the CBD, the Rocks, Surrey Hills, Glebe, Leichhardt and even Redfern. And it caused approaching 100 deaths. You see, I've heard about the flu that hit Australia after the First World War, but I've not heard about this one. Yes, well, this third pandemic, it waxed and waned throughout the world, actually for the next five decades. What? And it didn't fully end until 1959. That's two years before I was born. Well, it caused over 15 million deaths, Mikey, the majority of which were in India. And something else I didn't know, this plague is still very much around to this day. Currently, 2,000 cases occur annually, mostly in Africa and Asia and South America with a global case fatality rate of 5 to 15%. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media. Same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at The Rest Is Hist. The Rest Is Hist, and you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. On whichever platform you happen to use, it's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there, lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 